0: what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. Mary walks down Market Street toward Oxford on a cold February day. It's 1866, Lynn, Massachusetts. Despite taking careful steps, Mary slips on a patch of ice and crashes to the ground. Electricity prickles up and down her spine. Each attempt to right herself is met with searing pain. Mary is carried to a nearby lawyer's house. The lawyer sends for Dr. Cushing. Dr. Cushing examines Mary and takes stock of her injuries. He finds substantial internal trauma, as well as observing Mary's pain and the spasms along her spine. The next day, Mary arrives back at home. The trip is only two miles, but each time the carriage encounters a divot or a stone in the road, Mary is racked with pain. Her prognosis is not hopeful. Mary spends the next three days in bed, no relief, little hope. On the third day, Mary asks for her Bible. She opens it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 2. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy lying on a bed, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Upon reading this passage, Mary discovers what she later calls the healing truth. And with this new knowledge, Mary gets out of bed, dresses herself, and proclaims that she is now healthier than she's ever been before. Mary's full name is Mary M. Patterson, later to be known as Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores navigating the 21st century economy with your humanity intact. This week, the next installment in our Context Clues series. Can we do better? Than positive thinking? Now, the story of positive thinking doesn't necessarily start with Mary Baker Eddy. And in fact, I don't know that Mary Baker Eddy would ascribe to positive thinking as a system of belief. But what Eddy did ascribe to was the belief that material reality is a product of our minds. Suffering, illness, pain, misfortune, these aren't truths but rather constructions of our thoughts. The healing truth that Eddie had discovered lying on her deathbed was that she had the power to realize her injuries were not real. She had the power to perceive her body as healthy and pain-free. Christian Science and Mary Baker Eddie are anomalies in the world of spirituality. While the denomination has remained relatively small, the influence of Mary Baker Eddy's work and the teaching of Christian science has had an enormous impact throughout the 19th and 20th centuries and on into the 21st. One person who took inspiration from Christian science is Ernest Holmes. In his 20s, Holmes was introduced to Mary Baker Eddy's book, Science and Health, and the Beliefs of Christian Science. He developed his own brand of religious science, as he called it, and toured around the United States giving talks. Ten years later, he published his first book, The Creative Mind, and then set to work on his seminal work, The Science of Mind. Like Mary Baker Eddy, Ernest Holmes has had an immense influence on the spirituality of the 20th and 21st centuries. Listen closely to this passage from The Science of Mind and consider what it reminds you of. Quote, Never look at that which you do not wish to experience. No matter what the false condition may be, it must be refuted. The proper kind of denial is based upon the recognition that, in reality, there is no limitation, for mind can as easily make a planet as an acorn. The infinite knows no difference between a million dollars and a penny. It only knows that it is. Holmes was a contemporary of other writers and teachers who took America by storm with messages about right thinking, confidence, and possibility. People like Dale Carnegie, Napoleon Hill, and Norman Vincent Peale made themselves wealthy teaching others the secrets of success. Norman Vincent Peale specifically considered Ernest Holmes a spiritual mentor. Peale was the son of a Methodist minister and studied to become a minister himself. After serving as a Methodist minister of a few congregations, Peale took up the position of pastor at Marble Collegiate Church in New York City. Marble Collegiate Church is one of the oldest continuous Protestant congregations in the country. Peel, who had changed denominations to take on the role, shepherded the growth of Sunday attendance from a couple of hundred worshipers to thousands. Among those in attendance were some of the richest and most powerful people in the city, including the Trumps. And Peel officiated the wedding of Donald Trump to Ivana in 1977. Peel was one of the first pastors to bring his sermons to the airwaves, hosting a radio program called The Art of Living for over 50 years. He also expanded his influence by founding the Christian devotional magazine Guideposts. But by far, the work that Peel is most known for is his book, The Power of Positive Thinking. And we'll come back to that book in just a bit. To me, the story of Eddie, Holmes, Peel, and their other contemporaries are the next chapter in Weber's analysis of the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, Weber's sociological theory about the unique character of the American economy hinged on the metamorphosis of the Puritan notion of vocation into the twinkle in capitalists' eyes. Weber explained that the secularization of Puritan ideals was actually a natural byproduct of the success of inculcating those ideals into American culture. Weber published The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism in 1905, and he died in 1920. But oh, how I would love to get his take on how writers like Peel infuse their inherently individualist capitalist teachings with the spirit of religion. I'd love to hear how he would interpret the massive influence of prosperity gospel teaching today. And since I can't ask Weber, I'm forced to tackle those questions myself. And don't worry, I'll save that analysis for another day and, and another medium. But today, instead, I want to dig into the legacy of writers and speakers like Peel, Carnegie, and the wealth of motivational speakers that emerged in the 20th century. Pun intended. I want to explore how the curated realities, to borrow a term from the writer Meg Conley, they taught us to diligently inhabit, might make it harder to see the real opportunities in front of us, both as entrepreneurs and as humans. So let's get back to The Power of Positive Thinking. The Power of Positive Thinking spent 186 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, after it was released in 1952. It's been translated into 42 languages. It's not hyperbole to say that it is one of the founding texts of the modern self-help industry. If you've ever been told to visualize success, believe anything is possible, or focus only on positive vibes, you can trace the lineage of that advice to the power of positive thinking. The book is not very original, of course, and certainly we can tie these familiar phrases to other times and other systems of belief as well. But Peel's influence in American culture, religion, commerce, consumption, community is immense. To get a feel for Peel's voice, let's take a look at the first chapter of The Power of Positive Thinking.
1: Believe in yourself. Have faith in your abilities. If you want a life that is full of joy and achievement, you must have confidence in your own powers. When I look around, I find it appalling to realize how many people are handicapped by the malady we call the inferiority complex. Lack of self-confidence is indeed one of the greatest personal problems besetting people today. Everywhere you encounter individuals who doubt their own powers, who shrink from life, who suffer from a deep sense of inadequacy and insecurity, who feel defeated and afraid. The sad thing is, in most cases, such frustration of power is unnecessary.
0: It's hard to argue with the merits of the first few sentences, even if they read like satire to me. But then Peel pivots to the people who are weighed down by inferiority complex. It's here in the seventh sentence that we can start to find Peel's willingness to blame suffering on individual failing. Because if suffering from inferiority complex is optional, then continuing to experience inferiority is a choice. Peel goes on to tell a story about an anonymous businessman who came to him after a talk with a, quote, Desperate concern. The man told Peel that he needed to close a deal the next day, but his lack of confidence and feeling of discouragement was getting in his way. He asked Peel how he could gain some confidence. I can imagine this man waiting for Peel after his lecture, the bags under his eyes, the suit that's perhaps a hair too big or maybe a hair too tight. He cast his eyes down at the carpet of the auditorium or the floorboards of the church. Maybe he drove all day to get to the lecture on time and prepare for his big meeting in the morning. It's the subject of some debate whether the anonymous and unsighted stories in positive thinking are true, even in a loose sense. But even if the specific businessman is a fiction, there were plenty of disaffected middle-aged men trying to keep it together in the mid-20th century. And there are still plenty of disaffected people of all ages, races, and socioeconomic statuses today. I see them after presentations, too. I see them trying to network their way into an opportunity, whether it's at a conference or on LinkedIn. I see you. Now, Peel's advice to the businessman, and to you, is an incantation of sorts. He claims to have told the man,
1: I shall give you a formula. As you walk down the street tonight, I suggest that you repeat certain words that I shall give you. Say them over several times after you get into bed. When you awaken tomorrow, repeat them three times before rising. On the way to your important appointment, say them three additional times. Do this with an attitude of faith, and you will receive sufficient strength and ability to deal with this problem.
0: The words Peel gives the businessman are from Philippians 4.13.
1: I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me.
0: Peel does offer to help the man analyze the root of his problem and even suggests that therapy might be needed. So, you know, credit where credit's due. Later self help books wouldn't be so generous. But he emphasizes that a large part of the cure will be repeating that affirmation
1: I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me.
0: The businessman agrees to follow Peel's prescription. And Peel claims that the man reported back to say that the affirmation did wonders for him, continuing,
1: "It seems incredible that a few words from the Bible could do so much for a person."
0: Stories like this one continue throughout the book. People with problems, most often financial or health-related, approach Peel for advice. He gives them a Bible verse to repeat, and voila! Success and or healing follow. Prayerize, pictureize, actualize, says Peel. Now there are many aspects of this particular story that boil my blood. To name a few, I don't believe there's anything magical about scripture, no matter how faithful you are. And I believe that using particular verses out of context distort the message of Christianity and excuse all sorts of harmful behavior, a critique also made by theologian Reinhold Niebuhr at the time. It probably goes without saying for listeners of this podcast that without a structural analysis of any person's situation and an understanding of the systems they are subject to, focusing on individual solutions tends to exacerbate problems. But for some reason, rereading this passage today, what really stands out to me is the lack of curiosity Peel brings to the conversation. I know that I've made the mistake of trying to answer someone's question exactly as it's presented to me. But every time I've gotten curious and asked even a few follow-up questions, a more important issue comes to light, and therefore, a better answer or better guidance. In this case, I might ask the man why he believes this meeting is a make or break opportunity for him. I might ask what obstacles he sees in the way of cultivating a greater sense of confidence. I definitely ask whether, barring any financial need, he actually wants to succeed at this line of work. Of course, I have the hindsight of now recognizing all the many forms success can take. I know that capitalist culture convinces us that we want all sorts of things we don't actually care about, whether it's a new car or a big promotion. But the power of positive thinking isn't interested in that kind of awareness. In fact, it plays a direct role in continuing to nurture the heteropatriarchal idea of success. It won't surprise you to learn that there are very few mentions of women in the book. The first story, in which a woman is the subject rather than the object, comes about a third of the way into the book. In this story, Peel advises a woman on enhancing her attractiveness and creating a more inviting home so that her husband won't leave her. Peel's vision of success is quite homogenous, flat, rather dull. There's an almost Stepford Wives quality to the stories he tells. The people in them don't so much seem human as they seem robots with a janky line of code. Fix the programming, fix the man. Add the right Bible verse into the software, and everything will be good as new. Now, honestly, I'm uneasy critiquing something like positive thinking or, as we'll see later on, confidence culture. Who can really argue with thinking positively and embodying more confidence? Finding small amounts of joy, giving yourself a hearty pep talk, staying present instead of spiraling into rumination. These are all good things. But when the solution to every complex problem is reduced to a simple formula, we're less likely to be curious the same way Peel is incurious. We're less likely to question the variables of the equation we're trying to solve or wrestle with whether we want to solve that equation at all. To my mind, positive thinking dulls our curiosity and stifles our creativity. It doesn't let us inquire as to what we're really working with when we tackle a challenge or need. Positive thinking has a way of making reality an inconvenience. Just as Mary Baker Eddy denied the reality of matter and materiality, Peel denies complexity and context. The result ends up the same, wishful thinking. In my senior year of college, I joined Mary Kay as an independent beauty consultant. I was recruited by a woman who worked at the college library. We'll call her Barb. Barb was all in on the multi-level marketing dream. When I joined, she had just earned the first big prize in Mary Kay's distributor hierarchy, a red Pontiac Grand Am. No, it wasn't the pink Cadillac that everyone associates with the brand, but getting a new car, sort of for free, was still really exciting. I even went to the dealership with Barb and some of the other women in her downline to pick up the car. I purchased my starter kit because even as a mousy, awkward 20-year-old, I loved makeup. I also loved the idea of making some money, and I really liked the straightforward way a new beauty consultant could work their way up the ladder. Once I was in, I found the motivational messages and positive vibes intoxicating. I had never been exposed to something like that before in my life. I looked forward to the weekly meetings where we'd pump each other up and celebrate successes. Probably less than a month after getting started, my recruiter, Barb, invited me to attend a special event with her. It was like our weekly meeting, but this event was for consultants from all over the area from a huge variety of downlines. The draw of the event was a special guest speaker. The speaker was a woman from way up the ladder, probably sapphire or diamond or platinum, something or other. I hung on her every word. Wealth, women's independence, power, God. Barb could tell that my original interest in makeup and making some extra money had morphed into an ambitious drive for success. That night, back at her car, she handed me something from her trunk. It was an audio cassette. The cassette was of a recording of another motivational speaker within the company. I listened to it religiously. Whenever I was in my car, I'd put that cassette on or one of the many that followed it. Here's founder Mary Kay Ash motivating consultants in just that kind of talk.
2: Did you ever hear the story of the parents who had twin boys? One of them was absolutely positive. The other was absolutely negative. And since they were identical twins, they couldn't understand why the attitudes of those two children were so different. So they called in a psychologist. And the psychologist came and put the negative little boy in a room filled with every kind of toy a little boy could want. A bat and a ball and a truck and all the other things that little boys like. And then he put the positive child into a room filled with, would you believe, horse manure? And he left them both for an hour. When he came back, the little negative boy was sitting in the middle of the floor crying his eyes out. The bat might hurt him and the ball might get lost and the truck might run over him and so forth. Everything was wrong, and then he went to see the little positive boy, and there he found this child digging frantically in the horse manure, and when the psychologist asked him what he was doing, he said, with all of this in here, there's got to be a pony somewhere. I'm looking for the pony, and that's what I want you to do. Look for the pony.
0: He was looking for the pony. Isn't that delightful? No. This story is super messed up. First off, in Asha's Telling, the purpose of the psychological experiment was to determine why the little boys had such different dispositions. We don't seem to have a conclusion about that. Secondly, I'm no psychologist, but my first thought about a little boy in a room full of toys who can't play for fear of what might happen if he does is that he needs serious therapy, treatment for anxiety, and also a full investigation of whether he's suffered profound trauma. And third, the whole point of this story seems to be to show how the positive boy is better than the fearful boy. In her book, Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, Amanda Montell notes that cults and high-demand groups often use this sort of us-or-them programming to isolate members. She writes that, quote, The goal is to make your people feel like they have all the answers, while the rest of the world is not just foolish, but inferior. She says that telling people that they're above others or providing the means to become better than others makes it easier to abuse them. And it's worth noting that Montel covers Mary Kay in her chapter about MLMs. I believed that I was in control of my own success. I believed that positive thinking could reveal my problems for what they were, illusions. I believed that if I dreamed it, I could create it. And I believed that anyone who didn't make it brought it on themselves, that any questions or criticism were evidence of an inferior will and a lack of faith. The story of my experience in Mary Kay is unremarkable because it's the same story lived by millions of women. I worked hard for a few months and had some big victories, but they were all unsustainable. I burned out and dropped out. The inventory I still had sat in a closet in my mom's house for years, a reminder of my failure. Could my failure be due to some personal defect, a lack of character, an inferior disposition? In this case, there's a very easy answer, no. The multi-level marketing system is mathematically infeasible, but few scenarios have handy math formulas one can use to know for sure. And even when we find ourselves in a pretty clear-cut situation, it's almost impossible to recognize and acknowledge the obstacles we face. We're taught to believe that anything is possible, that doubt is scarcity thinking, that limitations are illusions. And so what could be mere course corrections or disappointments become failures. They become signs we weren't good enough and never will be good enough. If positive thinking is so, well, positive, how is it so easy to tie positive thinking to all of those negative effects? In January, a new book came out that tackled similar questions. It's called Confidence Culture by media studies scholar Shani Orgad and sociologist Rosalind Gill. Confidence Culture explores how lack of confidence seems to be the diagnosis for just about every perceived defect in girls, women, and non-binary people. Orgad and Gill argue that confidence culture recasts inequality and injustice as individual defects. We are personally responsible for cultivating the kind of confidence that will allow us to rise above the sky-high obstacles that are put in our way. Confidence culture and positive thinking are two sides of the same coin. Orgad and Gill's critique could just as easily be applied to any of the popular motivational speakers of the mid-20th century. They call it the neoliberalization of self-help. By emphasizing optimism, boldness, the right mindset, feeling good, developing the right attitude, and doing what you love, today's most widely shared advice makes it hard to see reality for what it is. They write, quote, Having the right emotional style becomes formulated as an imperative. Feel this and you can change your life. Dream big, take control, make a choice, and be confident. Realism is stigmatized. Acknowledging limitations is verboten. In the 21st century, we are called to be self-motivated and entrepreneurial, And to quote, make sense of our lives through the discourses of freedom, responsibility, and choice, no matter how constrained the latter may be by circumstances such as racism or poverty. Orgad and Gill also make the point that the economic and cultural forces that act on us don't reduce our decisions to simple calculations of cost and benefit. There is an emotional component at play. We invest in crypto and we cheer on other female crypto investors. We start companies and we help other women do the same. We don't just make money to live a more secure life. We make money to have an impact, live our values, and care for our families. Orgad and Gill write, quote, Instead of questioning the neoliberal order that created the struggle and pain borne by its subjects, having to work 17 hours a day, being in precarious employment, being constantly sleep-deprived, etc., This mode of apprehending and being in the world encourages acceptance of the existing order as the only possible order, or the best of all possible orders, and harnesses individual resources to survive in neoliberalism with resilience and courage. Positive thinking and confidence culture may be prime contributors to the overwhelming loneliness that so many feel today. When we invest billions of dollars every year in being told that success or failure is the product of our inner lives, it's hard not to believe that there is no help that's not self-help. About two years after my very brief stint in Mary Kay, now managing the bookstore once again feeling like a complete failure, The Secret debuted. The Secret, if you don't remember, is a book and DVD about the law of attraction. It introduced the idea of manifestation and thought control to the masses. And by masses, I mean we'd go through cases of this book every day. Rhonda Byrne, the author, appeared on Oprah multiple times. The secret came on the heels of the film What the Bleep Do We Know about, ostensibly, quantum physics and creating your ideal life. Who you are is the infinite being. And who you are
2: can manifest anything, because you are the one and only power in the universe. And when we're coming from the perspective of a person, with all of our wound-up beliefs and everything that we've taken on, it's kind of... Challenging to realize that you are the infinite
0: being that is all the power in the universe, but you are. That's Rhonda Byrne in a recent video posted to YouTube. Now, between my first brush with positive thinking in Mary Kay and the surge of interest in thinking your way to a better life that I saw at Borders, I had apparently grown much more cynical. I rolled my eyes and looked down on the poor schmucks who drank the flavor aid. Forgive me, I was 22 and deeply depressed and I didn't have much access to empathy at that time in my life. The gurus of the secret, the motivational speakers within Mary Kay, the filmmakers behind What the Bleep, they are all part of a lineage we can trace back to Norman Vincent Peale, Ernest Holmes, and Mary Baker Eddy there are plenty that came before them too. And there are versions of these same belief systems in a variety of cultures around the world. Any time there is a large group of disaffected people seeking hope, there will be people willing to sell them a highly specific solution to their problems. My goal in breaking all of this down is not to disparage spirituality or religion or indigenous ways of knowing my issue is not with the belief systems, but by the way they've been co-opted for personal gain, deployed as weapons against people in pain, and drilled into us so many times that it's often hard to identify our own desire or values. Today, positive thinking still exists in churches with charismatic leaders, the stages populated with motivational speakers and the self-help shelves of bookstores. But increasingly, Positive thinking is social media currency. The same affirmations that Mary Baker Eddy peddled at the turn of the 20th century and made Norman Vincent Peale rich in the 1950s are recycled into quote grams and Insta-Lives. The pop wisdom of the secret and the pseudoscience of what the bleep are mainstays of YouTube and TikTok. Each time I log into Canva and create a new design, the app suggests templates that are pre-populated with content equally at home on a wellness influencer's feed as it is in Think and Grow Rich. In a recent series of essays, the writer Meg Conley explores the multi-layered cultural significance of the Spring Christy Dawn catalog. Now, for those listeners who have not embraced the prairie aesthetic, as I myself have not, Christy Dawn is a line of ethically produced clothes, mostly ultra-feminine dresses. Since this is a podcast and I can't show you the Christy Dawn aesthetic, here's audio from a commercial the brand posted to YouTube. I think you'll get the idea. They say if you pull a string in the universe, it's attached to everything else. Each farm-to-closet dress is a microcosm of the natural world." Conley incorporates gender politics, celebrity culture, and enthusiasm for manifestation and positive thinking into her delightful analysis of the Christy Dawn catalog. Throughout the catalog, Conley notes, are vivid descriptions of nature and transformation. The catalog, or journal, as the company calls it, invites readers, or maybe shoppers, to blossom, explore, metamorphosize. It's like an Instagram fever dream. Conley deftly names this milieu of fantasy femininity and fetishization of nature a curated reality. And reality must be curated in order to remove all of the discomfort and doubt that interferes with manifesting your own beautiful world. Manifestation teachers echo Mary Baker Eddy teaching that disease isn't reality, just a creation of the divine mind. They echo Peel when he insists on suppressing negative thoughts and curating the perfect formula of positive Bible verses as affirmation. They echo the prosperity gospel preachers who remind you that the $1,000 you send them in seed money will come back to you many times over because of your faith. They echo the motivational speakers and YouTube personalities that emphasize how simple and easy success is if you believe the right things and do the work. But for every one rags to riches story that seems to support the efficacy of positive thinking, There are thousands and thousands of people who believe they brought their failure on themselves. People who mourn their lack of discipline, their flimsy faith. People who wanted so badly to be good enough to make the money, find their soulmate, or heal their illness, but came up short. Today, positive thinking is just one brand of magical thinking. Manifestation is another. But so is endlessly searching for the trick that's going to make your business work or your content go viral. So is hunting down the right micronutrient to clear your skin, numb your pain, or remove a neurochemical obstacle from your path to happiness. So is buying a pretty prairie dress to explore your truth or downloading an app to find inner peace. Business, success, life, love, reality is messy. It's complex, it often defies reason, but that doesn't make it immaterial. When Sean is frustrated with me, he often calls me a pessimist. And maybe you're thinking that I'm a pessimist right now too. What he really means is that I don't easily engage with magical thinking. I'm not very good at suspending disbelief or letting go of rationality. I like facts and details. I'm hyper-literal. And it's from that position that I find hope and possibility. Hope and possibility often exist simultaneously for me with deep despair or pervasive bleakness. I don't find these emotions mutually exclusive. They're the natural byproducts of the human condition, the whole human condition. It's what comes from knowing that reality is full of bad things and that those bad things can change. The existentialists were excited by and a little afraid of the freedom to choose something different in each moment. Nothing was set in stone, nothing preordained. Freedom to them doesn't mean the sort of neoliberal freedom we see battering down the doors of the US Capitol or openly carrying assault weapons into stores. Existentialist freedom recognizes the context and conditions of the world around us while reminding us that we are always confronted with choice. Describing Simone de Beauvoir's The Ethics of Ambiguity, Sarah Blakewell writes, quote, the question of the relationship between our physical constraints and the assertion of our freedom is not a problem requiring a solution. It is simply the way human beings are. Our condition is to be ambiguous to the core, and our task is to learn to manage the movement and uncertainty in our existence, not to banish it. Similarly, Rebecca Solnit, perhaps best known for her essay, Men Explain Things to Me, writes of the unfinishedness of our world as the ultimate source of hope. By wrestling with the ugliness and pain that exists, We can work together toward better systems, more generous structure. Positive thinking adherents are quick to assume that the opposite of positive thinking is negative thinking. But I don't think that's quite right. I think the opposite of positive thinking is hope. A hope that acknowledges what's true internally and externally, individually and systemically, and recognizes that change is possible precisely because we can recognize the challenges around us. Today, I invite you to acknowledge the real challenges you have in your business or work. One of those challenges might be something you created. Maybe you've left your client files disorganized for too long. And some of the challenges you face will result from external forces lack of childcare options, inflation, oppression, algorithm changes, a family crisis. You may be tempted to ignore those issues and press on, cultivating positive vibes and exercising negative thoughts. But I've found that what works is engaging with the challenges, getting curious about them, thinking creatively about how they might be overcome. When I do that, I I can't curate them out of my reality. I have to look at the whole picture in detail. And when I can see the whole picture, when I don't ignore the reality of my own situation, I can't help but see how my challenges are also your challenges. I see the connections between us, our work, and our livelihoods, as well as our connections to the system writ large. When I choose to stand face to face with the mess of reality, I know I'm not alone. Despite its lofty claims, positive thinking reduces complex issues into bite-sized problems. Problems that are easily solved, it seems, with a consumer product. But true entrepreneurship is the hope of tackling challenges the way they are, rather than drumming up demand for a Band-Aid solution. Whatever you're challenged by right now, self-doubt, feelings of inferiority or lack of confidence are almost definitely not the real problem. Get curious, talk with others, think beyond individual or surface level solutions. We may have to look some nasty stuff in the face, but with each other's help, we can solve real problems. If what works is helping you think differently about how you're navigating the 21st century economy please share the show with a friend the easiest way to do that is through PodLink. you can find the show at pod.link slash what and that page will allow anyone you share the show with to easily open their favorite podcast app and start listening that's pod.link slash what what Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was edited by me, Tara McMullen, and Marty Seefeld. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. What Works is recorded and produced on the ancestral homelands of the Susquehannock people. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Katunaha Nation.